Welcome back, Disruptors, to Season 2 of the Liberation Lab Podcast. My name is Bobby. I am the founder and CEO here at the Liberation Lab. Our mission is to empower educators to become disruptors through culturally responsive teaching, restorative practices, and social justice education. This mission is integral to building transformative spaces where, where growth takes root enabling educators uh, to learn openly, collaborate purposefully, and evolve professionally and personally. So some quick things uh, here in season two, I want to just forecast for you what you're going to be seeing. Uh, some, some things I've learned from the first season. First, an hour might be a little long, and that's all right. We, we, we learn from the data and we grow and we change. And so uh, you'll be getting 30 minutes each episode. The second thing is you'll be hearing from me the next week. We'll bring up a guest to to do some interviews to talk about the subject matter. And so that'll be the kind of rhythm we see moving forward. And so this season is centered on healing and humanity. And why healing and humanity? I think we all have to remember that we are, as educators, we are always placed in the middle of a story. That story has been written before we had this child that's in front of us, and that story will be continued to be written even after we have moved that child on to the next grade. The traditional systems and experiences of schooling, despite even our noblest of, of intentions, they can unintentionally or even intentionally exacerbate the gaps that we see in education. They can perpetuate traumas and inequities that our students and families face. When I think about healing and humanity, I, I go back to an experience that I had in my first few years of teaching. I was in Camden, New Jersey, voted one of the most dangerous and poorest cities to live in. And I went there, uh, I was teaching in a charter school. And when you graduate, you find out just how much you really don't know about teaching. You, you might know subject matter, but relating that into the hearts and minds of students was a hard sell. And so think about it this way. I have served for uh, going on 13 years as a middle school math teacher. Prior to stepping into school leadership, that was my role. And so I always sold a product that no one really wanted to buy. And so here I am in that classroom and I know math and I know the things that they are supposed to learn, but I didn't know how to really relate that to, to children, how to inspire them and connect with them. And at least I thought I, 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 I did, but I learned very quickly that there were things that I needed to grow in. So I was handed a book called Teach Like a Champion, Help Me God. And that book had high control methods for how I was supposed to um, instruct, how I was supposed to educate, how I was supposed to, I guess, inspire. I read that book. I went to work. I espoused every single pedagogical practice that I found in that book. And before, before I really knew it, I guess, there was so much damage that I had done because I looked like my students. And so 
I was allowed, I was given leeway with them um, because of my proximity in somewhat of our culture and understandings. But I was I was creating harm, serious harm uh, by way of using these these methods. And, and what these high control methods did, uh, it was a way that demanded that our babies conform or be cut out of the system, cut out of opportunity, cut out of advancement. Because if you didn't come the way that I demanded that you come to my classroom, to my school, to my learning experience, then you were not given access. And I'll never forget, there was a young man who... I was just having difficulty with young uh, black male. He was in my classroom or in the various times that I interacted with him. We just we had a hard time really building, really connecting. Um, Looking back, I could see why. And we sat down with him and his mother, um, my school leadership at the time. And I'll never forget the words she said. She said, I can't make it out of here. I'm stuck, but you can make it out. She said this with tears in her eyes, pleading with her son to just do what the school was asking, to just conform, because this was the only means that she could see to change her son's destiny. That young man, as I look back, had so much to offer, yet refused to conform. I don't really even blame him. I failed to tap into that young man's genius. I failed to tap into his funds of knowledge. And it's interesting as I think about it, because when did I ever even stop to consider how he was experiencing me? Because if truth be told, I centered myself, my pride and my ego because I knew best. I was older and And quiet as it's kept in our world, young people are a marginalized people group. They are an oppressed people group. We don't listen to them. We demand of them and they have to show up the way that we demand or they're given consequences that they can't even advocate for themselves in. So now I think about this young man who's in front of me, whose parent is is crying and trying to plead with him. And I I think about uh, the book, The Giver. The, the, the main character, the, the receiver of memory is he's going through life in black and white. He has demanded that he conform to the ways in which they're trying to instruct him. And it isn't until he meets a new teacher that gives him a better view that's outside the bounds of what's currently constructed for him. It isn't until he meets this this teacher that he begins to see the world in color. And this access to this knowledge pushes him out of the community, pushes him out of being welcomed into that community to the point where you're left literally and figuratively on a cliffhanger. Isn't that a picture of what happens in our our schools? If you don't show up seeing things in black and white, the, the the framework from which I am demanding that you show up, if you come up seeing color, you can't you can't stay here. I will suspend. I will push out. I will redirect. I will recommend you go somewhere else. 
And you think about the long-term impact that that has on our babies, that that has on how they show up, that that has on how they access information in this place, but that may have been torturous for, for them called school. Schools have been used historically um, to beat people into submission. And here we are as educators in the middle of that story. And this is why we must center healing and humanity. We saw what conformity got us on the other side of let's get back to normal post pandemic. We saw what happened. Centering healing and humanity means that we must have a fundamental repositioning of our students and their families. Students have to be more than that diagnostic data. They have to be more than reports, more than our clients, more than our patients, more than our caseload. Students have to be more than the passive recipients from the quote unquote experts in the building, AKA the adults. We have to do away with this banking model understanding of education, where we believe that our students come to us empty and therefore we deposit the only means of transaction is from us to them. We deposit the knowledge into them. They have nothing to give. They are not active participants in the learning process. They sit and do what we say because that is the only way that they can learn. Think about what kind of message that sends to a child, that your thoughts, your feelings, who you are, how you show up, your understandings of the world, your creativity, the way that you have constructed meaning in your world isn't welcomed unless we say so, isn't welcome unless we desire it isn't welcome unless we create room for it. This need for healing will transform educators, school leaders, school board officials, district leaders. This need for healing is, is across the board. What does it say that we demand that teachers show up produce, perform, put on the mask and never tap into who they are in their full humanity and how they show up in classrooms. We ask them to wear the mask and then get mad at the part they play. District leaders who now having been in this position for some time, I can tell you it's middle management. District leaders are expected to inspire, expected to uh, produce results across the board to manage people despite what they may be thinking, feeling, despite the mandates that might come down from the district office because of the, the overwhelming sense of pressure to produce, to change the narrative about a certain school or demographic to improve because the state is looking, you must perform at all costs. You must produce at all costs. Let me pause here and say, I completely understand, at least I believe I do, that we must improve student outcomes. We must improve 
how our babies are learning and growing and and because of the frameworks that we've been given because of the society in which we live yes we have to put them up on game they must perform for uh, the standardized test until that becomes something that we don't do anymore like that's just part of the game i understand that what i'm saying is even though that might be our present reality we have to we have to do a better job of how our humanity and our need for healing informs that practice I think about it this way, going back to that young man who I told you about. I was raised into a a military family. My grandfather demanded that I look him in the eye, I shake his hand. That is how I show respect that I defer to those older than me simply because they were older than me. That it was no, sir. Yes, sir. And I think a lot of those things are, are, are good and I can understand the point of them. But here's where I think there's some pushback needed. I know a lot of old fools. I know folks who are older than me who I don't want to listen to. And so to demand that age be the determining factor for who needs to be listened to in our society is something that has done us more harm than good. I have learned much from young people how they see the world, how they reimagine their creativity. And what kind of educator would I be if I don't demand of myself that I become a student of my students, that I learn from them, that I study what makes them tick, how they see the world, and I use that to inform my practice. That learning become alive because I'm connected to who they are. So, educator, disruptor, how do we do that? I want to suggest three ways for us to be able to do that. And I hope um, that as you're listening, hopefully on this Monday or throughout the week, that you take these to heart, you reflect on them. And I would hope <laughs> that that you reach out. There's There is a human behind the platform, like, please reach out. Let's connect and build about how to make this a reality. But let me suggest three things. First, if we're going to truly center healing in humanity, we must understand that relationships are at the heart of learning. Now, hold on. I know that this. This understanding, these even the words relationship has been ripped, kicking and screaming out of context. I know that you have been told build relationships as an answer to a child who, you know, may be misbehaving or is in the is in the principal's office or the dean's office time after time after time. I know that maybe a leader who has not considered all the things that you've brought to the table has said, have you built relationships? I get it. I want you I want you before your inner lawyer rises up to just consider this. I need you to think about relationships in the ideal. They are reciprocal in nature. They spring from a place of trust, of mutual, mutual understanding. If I'm truly in relationship with colleagues, friends, 
significant others, then my understanding of the world isn't the dominant voice in our relationship. There is a mutual understanding. We both benefit from the differences in that relationship. If, if we're talking true relationship building, then I'm listening and learning more than I'm speaking and demanding. And if that's true, then relationships have to be at the heart of learning because it's going to inform how I connect with students. I'll give you an example that uh, has helped me in my teaching career. There was a student who I had the joy of teaching. It was a seventh grade classroom this year. And the student was, he had to be 11. He was younger. They had moved him up. He's uh, a very smart young man, brilliant young man. Well, he comes to my classroom and he's every bit of 11, like to the point where if I don't call on him immediately, his arms flail in disgust. He is upset with me because he knows the answer and he's eager to learn. And he wants to prove that he belongs in this classroom of people who are older than him. See what he didn't gain in stature and size and and social capital he tried to make up for academically. That's the narrative. That is what I learned from being a student of this student. Well, knowing that that's who he is, knowing that that's how he saw his classroom experience, I, I made him, if you will, uh, my pseudo class president. And here's what that meant. I gave him a little deck of post-it notes and I handed that to him and I said, during my instruction, during direct instruction, I need you as you're taking notes and understanding, I need you to look around. And if I'm missing a group of students, if I'm, if what I'm saying just isn't connecting with them, would you please just write that down on a post-it note? Tell me who they are. What part of the lesson am I at? What am I trying to get across? Put that on a post-it note and just hand it to me. You have permission to stand up and silently hand that to me. Put that on my desk so I can read it. And what this did simultaneously is two things. One, I said this publicly in front of the class. So what I did was I, I decentered myself and gave power away. I told the class that I want to be evaluated too. And to that child who was going to raise his hand every single time and be mad if I don't call on him, it gave him um, a sense of responsibility in the class to where now he's learning and looking to see if others are learning too. And now is giving me constructive feedback in the moment that involved him in the process. Don't you know that he lit up with that job, that he raised his hand and was not disappointed when somebody else got called because he understood that the classroom wasn't just about him, that it was about the greater community? Well, I only get that through, through learning and valuing and treasuring who he is, his funds of knowledge and how he showed up and the expectations that were placed on him by his family. That's what I mean when I say relationships are at the heart. You see, that changed everything between me and that student. By building that relationship, I learned what made him tick and I used it to help inform my classroom and it made me a better teacher. 
because now when he put a post-it note down, I'm looking at it and I'm saying, mm, I'm continuing to miss this group of students. Why? It made me reflect more. It made me grow more. And I, w I owe it to that student in the process. But secondly, healing recognizes the way that history shapes our past and our present. This is, this is really key. I think about my sixth grade year. If you've been listening to me for a while, you know this story. Um, my sixth grade year, I was one of two black students in the gifted and talented program at my school. That was in the honors program. There was a lot going on at home. Uh, my mom was going through a divorce. I was angry. Things were out of control. I could not control things. And so for me, my protection at that time was to not put out as much effort because I was afraid that I would fail. I was dealing with all the the breakdown of, you know, what seemed to be or what I hoped would be that family that I didn't have. And so I struggled that year, B's and C's. I got into some dust ups, some fights. I was angry. I was in the principal's office. My name was known in the principal's office. But I buckled down fourth marking period. I really strived. I worked hard and I got A's and B's. And at this time, teachers would literally write in pen feedback for you in the comment section. So I remember the teacher's handwriting and she said, this student does not belong in the gifted and talented program. This student does not belong. Those words haunted me for much of my academic career, probably up until my graduate school. And why is that? Well, those words, those words for somebody who was struggling with a sense of belonging, for somebody who was struggling with how to navigate this world. And again, this is sixth grade. So we're talking the beginning of a whole bunch of changes. I just. I didn't know how to deal with it all. And you know, one thing that that teacher never did ask me why, why was I struggling? Why did it seem like I was angry or not connecting? What could she have done better? Never was there a conversation like that. Now that affected me for much of my career. Now think about what happened my seventh grade year or eighth grade year or ninth grade year when I was performing well. I had honor roll all throughout high school, but no one ever said, mm, I think you need to be in this, this, this honors program. I think you need to be challenged more. So I just settled because I felt like hear it again. I did not belong. See, if you're centering healing, then you understand that history shapes both past and present. This means we must seek and transform how historical, generational, and individual traumas affect teaching and learning. Healing demands that we seek to contradict and dismantle the damaging beliefs and expectations that people have on themselves, that students and families have on themselves. Think back to what I told you about that mother and son in my first few years of teaching when she said, 
I can't make it out. What would it have looked like for us as a school to rally around her and say, if this is a desire that you have, if this is what success looks like to you, how can we serve you in such a way that empowers you? What if we had access to community resources of resume writing, that we had connections to point her to other ways of making a higher earning potential for herself. So now that could be a reality if that's what she wanted. But you know what I said in that meeting? Nothing. I accepted it as a reality and didn't seek to push back to to dismantle to to learn from and fuel a transformative experience for that mother and that son because i saw the world in black and white and he and his mother needed to see the world in color but thirdly healing promotes individual and collective agency the question we have to ask ourselves is how do we serve children and their families in ways that meet their needs, that realize their aspirations and, pers- and help them persist and thrive in their own communities? Do you go on autopilot when you drive to your school? Do you not take in the community artifacts that are around you? How does the community look like this? And I'm talking about in any sector of where you teach, whether that be, you know, the most affluent communities, the most impoverished communities and everything in between rural, urban, suburban, take it all in. All of that points to something that you could be pulling in, that you could be asking questions about, that you could get curious about. Do you see students and families as assets to the teaching and learning experience in your class? Or are you the only expert that they need to hear from? Do you recognize that their skills and abilities are essential to the support of their peers and you, the educator? When's the last time you actually learned from your students and praised them for the fact that they taught you something? My demand that that student see the world in black and white stems from the fact that I could swim, metaphorically speaking, in fresh and salt water. I could thrive because I was willing to bend and conform a bit to the dominant culture in which I was immersed in. I I learned how to speak a certain way, how to raise my hand, stand up, sit down. I learned how to conform in such ways that then gave people a lens to see my intellect, to see my potential because I showed up in the ways that they asked me to. But what about the student who hasn't learned that yet or refuses to conform? How can I give them the ways to be able to navigate both salt and fresh water to borrow from that analogy? How can I show them the benefits of being able to do both because our world Although we want it to change, this is the world in which we live. How can I ensure that liberation isn't something that I just phrase in a vacuum, but I show them how they can thrive in their community despite the oppression that exists? How can I seek their healing as I prioritize mine? Family, that's what this season is about. 
that we would be people that would center healing and humanity in our classrooms because not only do we deserve it, but every single family member, every single community member, every single stakeholder deserves it. Healing says, I value you, the person, more than what you produce. And because of that, we now can learn and yes, produce in a way that centers who you are. You don't have to sacrifice your dignity to belong here. You don't have to sacrifice the things that 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 are near and dear to you to belong here. You belong because you are just here. You are living and breathing and you're here. What would that do for our learning spaces? So this season, family, Disruptor, we're centering healing and humanity on this podcast so you could center healing and humanity in your classroom, in your district in your communities, with your families. I'm, I'm convinced that this is what's needed for us to learn and grow together. So let's disrupt together by centering healing and humanity wherever we may be. Till next week, y'all, let's keep pushing. Peace.